I hit him a couple times, but he never hit me. <laughs> I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Well, pockets up in the ear or a cold libation. Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him, what you got? He said, I'll start up with some talking and some moody clips of popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations, and some groundless exploitation, kickstarts that I'm watching, and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I let the dogs come on, contests, and of course you know it's all about games. I said, slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG. With the other Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today is a mailbag episode. I don't have a whole lot to tell you up front. We're just going to reach in the mailbag and pull out some calls and talk about them. So let's get to it. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator screaming is coming from inside the house. First up is Joe Richter of Hindsightless, who's going to hate on the old school. This first call is how he thinks it's adversarial the way that OD&D handles night vision. And the way that works is all monsters, which includes men, of course, includes humans, in the dungeon can see in the dark, but no PC, regardless of their race, can see in the dark, unless they cast a spell or something like that. It, it specifically says that all monsters in, in men, excluding PCs, you know, can see in total darkness in the dungeon. But then it talks about how any NPC be, or any monster who works for the player characters, you know, be they a, a hireling henchman, be they something that's been charmed, they lose their ability to see in the dark once they work for the PCs. And and Joe finds that concept very irritating. So let, let's hear his angry call about that. Dude, Jason, the reason it is adversarial, it is 100% adversarial, is because there's no reason to for those monsters to lose their dark vision just because you use Charm Monster on them. That's, that's actually a shitty rule. That's a poorly designed rule. Uh, the fact that all humans can see in pitch blackness, as it says in the book, as you read, except for player characters, that's a shitty rule. That's a bad rule. <laughs> Like, it's an adversarial rule because there is no justification for it. The justification is because I, as a dungeon master, don't want my players to have infravision. That's the only reason. Uh, the fact that all, like, if you just said no human in the game has infravision, they can't see in the dark, cool, that's it. But every other human except for player characters, that's just a dick move. <laughs> yep, peace out. Well, there'll probably be more. Yeah. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Joe, I think the important thing here is to realize this is the first ever 
actual role-playing game. There are precursors to this. The Braunstein, the Blackmore campaign, McGarrity's Dungeon in some ways, of course, heavily influences Gary Gygax. But this is the first ever role-playing game. This is a developmental step to your hoity-toity modern game. And we see this even in the title. Dungeons and Dragons, Rules for Fantastic Medieval War Games, Campaigns Playable with Paper and Pencil and Miniature Figures. So when we look at that and we think about that mentality, this starts to make sense. Because in war games and board games that these develop from, that, that kind of mentality, you have balancing mechanisms. And this idea that the players don't have night vision or dark vision, whatever you want to call it, is a balancing mechanism. They can't see in the dark. Now, there are ways for the players to see in the dark, actually. If they cast a spell, there's infravision spell, their magic items. So they don't always have to have torches or something. There are other ways they can do it, especially as you get higher in level. But initially, it's a balancing mechanism. And there's nothing wrong with that. You just don't like it, which is okay. You don't have to like it. But you have to understand where this game is in the developmental step and where it is. I mean, it doesn't even call itself a role-playing game. It's still calling itself a war game. So, you know, you have to approach it on its own terms here. And we see that same mentality. Let's go to book three. And when we read the section starting on page eight, the move, turn, in the underworld, we see the same kind of idea with doors. So let me read you the section about doors in the underworld. Generally, doors will not open by turning the handle or by a push. Doors must be forced open by strength. A roll of one or two indicating the door opens, although smaller and lighter characters may be required to roll a one to open doors. There can be up to three characters attempting to force open a door, but this will disallow them rapid reaction to anything awaiting them on the other side. Most doors will automatically close despite the difficulty in opening them. Doors will automatically open for the monsters unless they are held shut against them by the characters. Doors can be wedged open by the means of spikes, but there is a one-third chance, die five or six, that the spike will slip and the door will shut. Of course, the part in here that will infuriate Mr. Richter is that doors will automatically open for monsters, but characters only have a one or two chance of pushing that door open. Again, this is that war game, board game mentality, and the idea of funneling the players and balancing and creating a challenge. And yet, modern games have different ways of approaching this, and that's okay. You don't have to like it, you don't have to play OD&D, but to, to, to attack it with vitriol, Joe, this is the granddaddy. Your Pathfinder wouldn't exist without this game. And, and here you are hating on its granddaddy, man. That's, that's just mean. You're supposed to help old people cross the street, Joe, not push them down in it. Okay, so we're going to go to another call from Joe where he's going to say some things about a statement from Jason Vay. I think I'm going to play Joe's call and then I'll reread. No, that's mean. Let me reread you the Jason Vay quote before I play Joe's call. Jason Vay is a game designer. He's been active in what we would call the OSR for a long time you know, to the Google Plus days. I'll put a link to his blog, The Wasted Lands, so you can read this in full, which I do recommend you read the entire thing. I just read a snippet, and it's probably unfair to take it 
just a snippet out of context. So I'll read a little bit more of this blog. I'm not going to read his entire blog article from January 2nd of 2019. But this blog article is titled, What is the OSR? Do we need to define it? And that's what he's doing. He's talking about, you know, all the swirling mess that, that's become the OSR, this muddy term. And he's going into that. So I'll, I'll read the beginning of the blog and I'm going to skip ahead. Again, Joe, I, I do recommend you read the entire thing to get this gentleman's context in before you start hating on the poor guy. So we start off, the OSR, originally short for Old School Renaissance, more recently in some circles, altered to Old School Revival, is undergoing something of identity crisis and has been for a number of years now. There are people who, with varying degrees of disdain, dismiss it as nothing more than a marketing ploy. There are others who insist that it's not a movement, but a philosophy. There are still others who try to enforce their personal definition with varying degrees of extremity. I saw one person recently insist that it only applied to original Dungeons and Dragons and nothing else. There are those who try to insist that Vampire the Masquerade is an OSR game, or even with the advent of 5e that 3 point whatever has become OSR. For varying reasons, I'm somewhat dismissive of all three of these claims. What exactly is the OSR? Was it a flash-in-the-pan fad? An ongoing movement? Is it a philosophy? Can it be firmly defined? And does it need to be? Did it ever exist at all? These are the questions I'd like to consider. This blog is almost certain to be controversial in some degree, given the diverse attitudes about OSR at this point, and it's almost certain that someone is going to wonder where I have the right to define the OSR when I'm dismissive of others' opinions. To be frank, without talking about how I define it, there's no blog here. That doesn't mean someone else's ideas are wrong, nor does it mean that my ideas are invalid. The point of a discussion is to express why someone feels or thinks a certain way, and I'll try to do that as clear and thoughtful a manner as possible, without trying to hold some imaginary, all-knowing authority. I want to reiterate that these are my thoughts and my ideas and nothing else. Clearly, they hold more, no more validity than anyone else's, nor do I claim to be some kind of authority. Finally, my failure to mention or acknowledge some aspect of the scene, moment in history, or specific retroclone or silicrom game is neither a dismissal nor a degeneration of that moment, aspect, or game. It's simply one could write volumes upon volumes regarding the last 20 years of this hobby, and this blog is already long. With that said, let's dig in. And again, I'm not going to read his whole thing. He talks about how the OSR began and goes over history. But again, I recommend everybody read this. There's a link in the show notes today. But the important thing here is to move to this quote that that enrages Joe. And we're going to hear this, this anger here in, in a minute. And so this is a, a section of, the, of his blog post called Changing Times, Setting Benchmarks. And we've already had a big section of the blog where he talks about the history of the OSR. Again, we're at the changing time, so we're, we're later in the movement here. It seems clear that the OSR was never a formal movement, but then few movements are. It was rather a common term applied to all those who were rediscovering older versions of D&D during the content glut and options bloat and varying design approach that arose during third edition era of D&D. Here we have our first benchmark to help define what it is. The intent of the OSR at the time was to rediscover what gaming was like before 3.0, which formed a definite split from prior philosophy. And yes, the OSR was specifically geared towards fantasy gaming 
in Dungeons and Dragons. I'm going to make a statement here that may chafe some people. Your personal preference of game doesn't define the OSR as a whole. Just because you only play OD&D doesn't mean that anything other than OD&D isn't OSR. I haven't played 2nd edition AD&D for almost 20 years, but I think it's clear it should be called part of the OSR. Likewise, some age isn't or I'm sorry, likewise simple age isn't a measure of what is old school. Vampire the Masquerade, for example, is difficult to place as an OSR game because its core philosophy of gaming differs strongly from the RPGs that fall in the OSR, which to me are largely D&D, AD&D, and the various clones and simulacra of those games. The idea of playing an ultra-powerful monster who is smitten with deep, deep pathos and thrust into a darkly political world, while certainly has its appeal, and I've enjoyed Vampire myself, doesn't fall in the same paradigm of gaming that Dungeons & Dragons does. In fact, Vampire the Masquerade was a deliberate attempt to shift away from the prior paradigms of gaming and explore a different style of shared storytelling that was entirely different. This unto itself disqualifies it from the OSR. This then forms our second benchmark. The OSR, as it was originally formed, applied to Dungeons & Dragons style games, and the philosophy and playstyle paradigms those games represent. What then is the physical philosophy? Damn it, physical that that word philosophy with the echo at the end of it. What what is that split to which I refer? In terms of D and D, there was an idea that began with third edition, which stated the power should remain in the rule book not in the hands of the Dungeon Master. This indeed was part of the standard design goal of the team that put 3.x together. Too many people claimed to have experienced bad DMs and wanted rules that covered every possible situation so that the problem of poor game mastering would be mitigated. These two things, a rule for everything, and taking the power away from the DM, were the defining, that word, philosophy with a go at the end of it, shift from old school to new school play. Okay? So, that's one of his big benchmarks and how he defines OSR and the reasons why he does it. The idea the power should remain in the rule book and not in the hands of Dungeon Master. So, hopefully that helps define what Jason's talking about a little bit more. Not me, Jason, but Jason Vey. And again, there's a link to this blog in the article, and he talks about a whole lot more in here. And I, I really recommend you check it out. It's it's a really well thought out article, and I I'm really doing a disservice to him in the article by not reading the whole thing. But a I don't have permission to read the whole thing, and b the last thing you want to do is hear me to try to read anything else. And you know what I mean. I, I I've just spent a ton of time here mumbling through this. But now that we set the stage. Let's hear Joe attack this poor man with vitriol. Yeah, man, that, that quote that you read from Jason Vey about how the defining difference between old school play and new school play is giving up the power of the DM, lessening of power, that says a lot. <laughs> that's pretty much, yeah, if that's the defining difference, then sure, put me in the new school camp because I don't need that power. 
right? I, I find that quote a little gross, actually. I don't need that power over the players at the table. I like a more collaborative thing where everything's having fun. And yeah, that's just a difference in play style, I guess. But I, I, I find that whole idea of power, it, it's, it's, it's distasteful to me. <laughs> and, you know, that's probably why I'm not a huge Gygax fan, because he was all about DM power. He talks about it over and over again, man. Yeah, there'll be more, I'm sure. It's not anything gross. It's just, like, say, a different play style and the idea of whether you're going to play the game as a board game or a war game where you're shackled by the rule book and the, the DM doesn't have any fiat or any ability to vary from that at all, or whether they have the ability to vary from that to help the game flow and the narrative flow as opposed to having to have crazy meta mechanics in your face pulling you out of the game and and that's a huge overstatement on my part all the way on the other end of what joe's talking about and i'm not helping the <laughs> i'm throwing it doesn't help for me to throw false arguments either here right but it, it's definitely a, a big difference between the idea of the origins here playing a war game they're moving away from the idea of a war game where the referee here now has a lot of fiat and power to edit things we're in a war game, everybody's just stripped by the book. So we're moving away from that. And then we have some players that don't like that. So these game, these other games that he's talking about that aren't OSR are moving, you know, restricting GM power and moving back towards the old paradigm of war games and board games, which is kind of interesting where, you know, in this brief period from the mid, from the seventies and eighties, we, we embraced the, the GM being able to facilitate this game. And now we have some games that move away from that and, and are again, want to be board games and war games where everybody are just players and have to go strictly by the book. And this goes back to that rule zero discussion we had where, you know, some people started to get heated up over it. So I, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole because I don't really want people to get heated up, but I, I do think it's an interesting discussion. You definitely don't have to agree with, with him on that, but I do recommend you read his whole article and so you can get it all in context. We shall never be done with this topic, man. <laughs> anyway, dude, thanks for recommending to First Age that he listens to my show, to those episodes. Yeah, dude, First Age, he's a smart fella, man. He's a smart fella, for sure. Anyway, dude, yeah, I stopped watching Sex Ed on Netflix to call into your show. That might be my new favorite show ever. It's 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 kind of genius. It's kind of awesome. So I'll get back to listening. You're just starting to talk about Reaver, so let me get into that. Awesome episode, dude. Fantastic calls. Well put together, man. Just really top-notch stuff. Yeah, I, <laughs> I love our back and forth. Uh, you, you know, not everybody likes that kind of relationship not everybody can take it as well as they dish it out the way you can jason and i really appreciate that about you i think you're a cool dude i think you're a good friend and i really look forward to having a beer with you sometime soon man anyway this is it back to watching sex education on netflix that show rules peace out hey joe yeah man this is all friends talking and we don't have to agree it's okay for you to be wrong you know i you can we can still be friends and also have a beer with you, even if you have bad, wrong fun. So it's all good. 
as far as sex ed, I haven't watched that. I know you and Carl and his wife, Amy, have all praised that highly. So maybe I'll check that out. I don't have, I didn't have a horrible time in high school and I had sex in high school, but I don't have great memories in high school either. It definitely wasn't the peak of my life or anything. I don't run around in my high school letterman jacket or, you know, wear my high school ring or anything. So I'm not saying you do those things, but I I don't know that I have that big desire to revisit high school. So that, that show doesn't overly appeal to me, but maybe I'll check it out on the strength and how much you love it and, and, and the fact that they enjoy it as well. So we'll see. As far as first age, yeah. Gaming from the first age, first age's podcast is really cool. He goes over a lot of neat topics. What Joe's talking about there is Joe and I were talking about system mastery and first age called in and talked about how, yeah, he sees where, where we're talking about and he kind of agreed with me on system mastery. But then he pointed out that, of course, more important than system mastery is player skill and they'd be able to be a good player at the table, which is a topic that Joe had talked about on his podcast in the past. So I recommend first stage, go listen to Joe's podcast because those are good episodes. So you have to go back to one of my previous episodes to hear that. The discussion there actually has spurred on other callers, including Gannon Norton of the Bandits Keep Media Empire. So let's hear that media baron weigh in on the topic of system mastery. So as far as the mastery stuff goes, which I think everybody's made some really good points, but what I do see is that everybody, for the most part, seems to be saying that being a good person around the table, paying attention, doing what your character would do, think about the environment, this and that, that's all part of every game. So whether you sit down to play Lasers and Feelings or you sit down to play Cyberpunk, right, that's always a baseline. So if you've mastered that, then you can sit down and just play Lasers and Feelings because there's nothing else to it. If you go to cyberpunk, though, you need to know things like that you have to shoot people in the kneecaps to kill them. So that requires more system mastery. So I still think that while any of them you can sit down and just play and really have a good time, I think if you really want to get the meat out of a complex game, you kind of do need to know the rules a little bit. A little bit. I mean, you don't have to be a master, obviously, and depending on your character, you should at least know what your character does. Like if you're playing, like I say, I'm playing uh, Hyperborea. So if I've got a fighter in Hyperborea, you know, I should, you know, I can sit down and just say, okay, I hit him with my sword, I hit him with my sword, I hit him with my sword. But then I could also learn the more advanced rules and become better at the game and then essentially be a better player and probably have more fun and make more fun for everybody at the table when I do these awesome moves, right? Because it's a cooler story. If I'm going to play a magic user, you know, yeah, I can sit down and be like, okay, well, I've played other games like this, I'll just take magic missile. Or I could actually look at the cool spells that are in Hyperborea and be like, oh, this is very unique. This fits the flavor of the thing. And as I master the system and I learn that, I can pick those proper spells or use them in a way that suits the setting, which again, makes a more fun story, more collaboration for everybody at the table. So I do think with the more complex games, it take, tends to take a little longer to master them. But once you do, they can actually be very, very rewarding. Whereas the simpler games, sometimes you can master immediately because there's nothing to them, right? It's just being a cool player. And those can also be rewarding. So there's both types of games are great. And I play both. Daniel, excellent points. I agree with them all. And I think that your example of cyberpunk is very apt because that shows a little bit of system mastery to shoot somebody in the knee because, you know, the knee's probably not armored. And it's going to drop them to the ground, which is going to give them a negative. But a true system master would realize that if you really want to kill somebody quickly, you shoot them in the head because headshots do double damage. And it only takes eight points of damage to the head to kill somebody. So as long as you do four points of damage 
to somebody's head, you kill them instantly. Thus, the true system master in cyberpunk is doing headshots. But that's probably neither here or there for this discussion. Thank you so much for that feedback. I really appreciate it. And I think it does kind of sum up that this whole system mastery discussion and puts a nice bow on it. So let's move on to something else. I'm going to turn it back over to Daniel. I think you make an excellent point as far as like people not showing up and like running something in anyways. But I will say in my case anyways, as a player, oftentimes if uh, the GM says to me, oh, you know what, half the group's not here, so I'm going to run something different. I kind of don't want to do something different. Uh, I join a game to play that game. And and that's especially true for online games, which I guess is what we're talking about. In my face-to-face group, yeah, whatever, we can play checkers. We're, we're going to hang out. Um, but in online games, I don't know. It's like I'm waiting all week to play, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics. And then they're like, oh, you know, instead I'm going to run Star Wars. That would just kind of turn me off a lot of times as a player. But, you know, that being the case, I think it is a good idea for the GM to offer that. Um, oftentimes when I can't run something or we're not going to run the campaign, one of my players will, will offer to run something, which I think is great because that gives me an opportunity to play as well. So, yeah, I think you're right. It's a good idea if there are people that want to play to play something. Daniel, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's an interesting perspective that, you know, you come to the game and you, and you want to play that game. And I think that's a valid perspective. I do 100%. And especially for a guy like you. So you've got a bunch of options of different groups you can play with. And if you're coming to me to play cyberpunk and you're you're taking a break from your regular Cthulhu group to come play with me and then you show up and I'm saying, well, I'm going to run Cthulhu instead. You're like, well, I've got a normal group I play that with. I came here to play cyberpunk. I get that. I do. So I think this is something maybe this part of that session zero discussion or whether yeah i know some people don't like session zero they want to call it session one which is fine but i think this is one of those early discussions a group has to have when you're forming your gaming group to say listen if we don't have enough players show up what are we going to do and and that's where all this comes from folks i guess i should give you a little bit of context for anybody just starting on this episode carl rodriguez the geomologist presents podcast called in apologizing because he had a recent game where any two players showed up and he canceled the game and he apologized and said that, you know, in the future, even if he only has one player show up, he's going to run something. And I made the comment in response to that, that, yeah, you could even run something else. If you're running a game and you're at a critical point in the campaign where it doesn't make sense to, to run that night without everybody present or with just a couple people present, then maybe you switch to a different game and you play, a, say, a convention scenario or some kind of one-off just for that that session. And, and that's what Daniel's responding to there. And the idea of somebody else running the game that night is a great one because it does give the GM a break. And if you know a couple days ahead of time that that's the case, somebody can prep. But a lot of times, unfortunately, with online games, we find out people have canceled the day of the game, maybe a couple hours before the game, maybe... They just don't show up for the game, right? So a lot of times you don't have time for somebody else to prep something. Now, some of us have things in our back pocket. So if you message me, you know, time recording, it is 4.56 Thursday morning. So if you sent me a message that, hey, Jason, at 6 o'clock, we're, I'm going to be able to play a game here in an hour. Or actually, you said, what I say? It's 4.56. So if you say, hey, do you want to play a game? I could hop on right now. We could play Ninja City which is a derivative of Dungeon Crawl Classics where you play 
eighties ninja movies. You know, I could, I could do that right now. And, and some of us have games already built in roll 20 that we could play right now. So as long as something like that is there, you got something in your hip pocket, you can whip out in the army would call this hip pocket training where well, we have 15 minutes. We need to fill. What are we going to do? Well, let's talk about, you know, applying a pressure dressing and, and you just whip it out and you, and you use that as a time filler. So I, I think that's something that, well, anyway, I, I think you guys know where this is going. So instead of me rambling, let's go to another call. I just needed to talk some more about They Live. That movie rules. Rowdy Roddy Piper rules. Uh, <laughs> it used to have the longest recorded fight scene in cinema. I, I don't think it does anymore, but it, forever it held the record as having the longest fight scene between Lou Gossett and uh, and Rowdy Roddy Piper. I love that movie. It, it's so good. Everyone needs to watch They Live. You're talking about Cowboy Bebop. I also really enjoyed Cowboy Bebop. Thank you so much for the recommendation. Uh, my other buddy was telling me to watch it too. And when both of you guys were like, you need to watch this, I was like, okay, all right, I hear you too. And I did, and I thought it was great. The vibe is great. Very funny, very stylistic like it was it was cool man so yeah and the ending mm, that ending was awesome she asks a question at the end that is so rarely asked in movies and in fiction in general that when she asked it i was like oh my god best question ever <laughs> yep anyway man thanks again for the recommendation i also would recommend the cowboy bebop and i watched the anime uh, both seasons, all 26 episodes, plus the movie, um, and I enjoyed that. But I enjoyed the what I the two episodes I've seen in the movie, and um, I I can see why people might not like some aspects of it because I've read some commentary. But what I do like is, is if you imagine like Pulp Fiction in space, and that's how I kind of see uh, the vibe of Cowboy Bebop, like a. a Rodriguez film or Quentin Tarantino film, a Richard Rodriguez film, you know, or Quentin Tarantino film in space. And I, I dig who's playing uh, the main characters. So I would like more Ayn and Ed, but uh, I guess maybe next season if they renew it. I love these calls so much because even more articulate people than I make mistakes. I, I'm kind of kidding. I love Joe and Carl. They're both great people. I break and bread with Carl and his wife and, and Carl's a, a great guy. I give Carl a hard time sometimes on these podcasts and call-ins and, and folks, it, it isn't good fun. I, I, I value Carl's a friend. I, I think he's a good guy, Joe, you know, now nah, I'm kidding. I, I, I like both these guys, but, but both of them, you know, great points. They live John Carpenter movie, great movie. Although Joe, I'm sad that you called Keith David Lewis Gossett jr. In, in your call. I, I know you, you know, the difference between those two great actors. And, and of course, Carl mentions the first two episodes, of the Cowboy Bebop movie, but he was really talking about the live action Netflix show. The first two episodes of that. They live. I do re highly recommend. Of course, they live is a send up of the, the Reagan era, right? It's political satire, but you can turn your brain off and just watch it as silly fun, too. If, if you want to just chew bubblegum and kick ass, right? As far as Cowboy Bebop goes, yeah, I really enjoy the live action show. I've just started watching the anime. I've watched 
I think three episodes of that. I think I fell asleep during the third episode because I was watching late at night. And I, you know, if I'm sitting down, I tend to fall asleep because I'm old. But I, I really enjoy the live action show. So I watched my first exposure to Cowboy Bebop was a live action show. And I think Carl really captured it there. It is that kind of Richard Rodriguez vibe, like a Mod Scott, Mod Squad vibe. It's really cool. I would really recommend everybody kind of check it out and take it on its own merits. Carl, I've just started watching, and actually, Ed hasn't shown up in the anime yet. But looking and seeing there, I see why they've backed off from using Ed in the TV show, in the live action show. Although we get like a base, it's almost like fan service at the end of the at the end of the movie. It's almost like an Easter egg when or the the last episode of um cowboy bebop live action but i understand why they've shied away from using ed in the show i i won't say any more than that because it's kind of spoilery if if you want to go on blind and not know anything I, don't, I won't say anything else but i think carl if you think about it you could understand why given the tone of the show ed isn't the most appropriate character because anime and manga tend to do some things that here in the west we would feel is inappropriate so, you know, we'll adjust ages of characters and things like that when we use them, where over there, they, they have different thoughts on those things. And that's not a bad thing at all. It's just different. Now they're, well, let me not talk about cultural differences, because <laughs> I'll dig myself into a hole pretty quick here. But anyhow, I do recommend people check out live action Cowboy Bebop, and especially if you haven't seen the anime. I think if you take it on its own merits, it's a pretty fun show, and it's it's pretty good, although it does get a little bit dark at the end. Okay, I've wittered on long enough. This is just a call-in show, not a Jason opinion show, so I'm going to let you get out of here. I want to thank all my callers. I want to thank you, the listener, for taking time out to hear me ramble on and hear the thoughts of these wonderful people that called in. If you want to be heard on my show, all you have to do is leave a message on Anchor. You can send an email to nerdsrpgvarietycast at gmail.com. If you attach an audio file to it, I'll play it on the air and make you famous. Or I can read your message on the air. You can also find me on a variety of different discords. I want to thank Ray Otis for the coffee cup clip art, TJ Drennan for the wonderful music. And lastly, I again want to thank you, the listener, for taking time out of your day to listen to my show. I will be back this weekend. Take care, folks. Joking about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I put a shoot in bed. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. There is a dustman in your moil's body zipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood shipper Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Don't look away Well the zombies are arising and the world is gone to hell We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train wreck